Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome to a new week, Solar Warrior. Here we go. This is Two for Tuesday. Whether that's a tactical Tuesday or just content from one of our many live events like SPI Podcast Lounge, this is going to be a short form conversation typically with subject matter experts designed to give you the practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business or career and grow with us here on Suncast as I know you will. I'm so glad that you've decided to join us again and level up your game. Remember, you can always find the resources and learn more about today's guests and recommendations in the blog at mysuncast.com. So get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior. Here we go with another powerful conversation on Suncast. Today, we're looking at how COVID-19 has impacted solar finance and development. It is a crazy time for you and I and everyone else in this and every other industry. So we've pulled together a remarkable panel of guests. So starting off with Senator Kevin Parker. Senator Parker is uh, the chairman and ranking Democratic member of the Senate Energy and Telecommunications Committee, member of the New York Senate District 21, and uh, of course sits uh, in, the, uh, in the cradle of everything that is taking place. Thank you for joining us, Senator Parker. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's such a, a pleasure to see you. And thank you for taking time out of your certainly busy day to join us here. Next, we're going to bring in Saparna Kadam. Saparna is at InterSolar, a prolific developer in New York and the Northeast. Saparna is the business development director there focused on providing enterprise clients with comprehensive solar and storage solutions with a compelling long-term ROI. InterSolar has been in the industry for quite a while and is making a huge uh, difference in the Northeast market. But Saparna uh, has been one of those folks that has quietly been making an impact, um, not only in the Northeast markets, but uh, nationwide, having uh, gotten into the industry on the hardware side, selling her company and, uh, and growing as a product and later market uh, and regional sort of territory uh, expert. So happy to have Saparna here. Saparna, thanks for joining us. Next, we are going to bring in Mr. Jim Spano. If you've seen some of the other events that we've held with uh, Suncast Media, then you're no doubt uh, an, uh, uh, an aficionado of Mr. Spano. He's the co-founder and head of originations at Radiant Re, which is a nationally recognized uh, organization in development and finance, as is Mr. Spano himself. He's been instrumental as a developer in more than 300 megawatts of solar generation, mostly in the Northeast. Uh, he's the founder and president of the New Jersey Solar Grid Supply Association, and he's a member of a, a, numer, a number of other influential organizations and himself a rather influential individual in our industry. Mr. Spano, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Glad to be here. Fantastic. We're next going to go to Phil 
Shin. Phil Shin is the managing director of cleantech and senior research analyst at Roth Capital Partners. Mr. Shin has been providing equity research coverage of the cleantech sector for decades, and he's covered the broad spectrum of cleantech subsectors and is currently focused specifically on solar. So we're going to definitely value and benefit from Mr. Shin. Welcome. Thanks for being here today, Mr. Shin. And then last but certainly not least, we have Mr. Brian Freitas. Brian is the Director of Solar Development, Renewables Energy Storage for PPL, Entrepreneurial Business Development and Finance Executive with both U.S. and international experience in project development, acquisition, finance, asset management. The list goes on. This guy's got 30 plus years and over $5 billion of asset investment and O&M management under his belt. And of course, PPL, as many of you know, is a Fortune 500 company employing over 12,000 people uh, hailing from Pennsylvania and providing service to more than 10 million customers. So it's going to be really fantastic to have Mr. Freitas give the perspective of our uh, our utilities in the market. Brian, welcome. Glad to represent PPL on its 100th year anniversary. <laughs> wow, what a legacy. I want to get started here with kind of a high level, what's happening at a policy level. It's a tumultuous time, to say the least, in policy with executive orders coming out uh, across the board with the global pandemic, which is why we have the sort of premise of our conversation here today. And no one has seen and felt and been involved in the direct impact of that more than those of you who are participating in the New York market. Mr. Parker, as I mentioned, is a senator representing perhaps the hardest hit community nationwide by COVID-19. And I'm sure, Mr. Parker, talking with your constituents in the business community, you have garnered some thoughts about how the solar industry and the broader cleantech industry is faring. I'd love to hear what in particular you might be hearing from your constituency about the impacts that we're seeing and uh, what you might be uh, feeling is going to be happening as we begin to open back up these markets. Well, first, thanks for including me in this important conversation in this webinar. And really, the the context we have to create is really not the COVID pandemic context, but really the context of where the solar development market was prior to COVID, right? So kind of BC, before COVID, right? And so in that period, um, we were already struggling, and, you know, and I'm going to speak for New York um, particularly, we were already struggling to get um, projects you know, cited and done, to be honest with you. Um, we, you know, did something called the CPA um, that, you know, is literally the most aggressive climate change, um, you know, uh, criteria in the entire country. Um, but really, honestly, from a um, institutional perspective, the agencies that actually cite these projects just really, you know, had not been, um, you know, getting the job done, frankly, uh, in terms of getting projects off the ground and getting them to completion. Uh, and so, you know, and so, so this has slowed up things even more, obviously, right? Um, and, and I think that we took some unprecedented steps because we were hit so hard and we kind of went belt and suspenders and stopped a lot of projects that frankly, in retrospect, we probably could have let go. But at the time, um, people were such in a panic about, about the potential of the spread of this, right? You know, like, you know, three months later, you know, as the curve has been flattened and, and we're kind of a little bit more on short footing about, about where we are and how to deal with this, this new uh, virus, um, we could be Monday morning quarterbacks and saying, well, we should have done this and we should have done that. 
But in that moment, we had no idea. And so, you know, we completely shut things down. There were a lot of projects that, frankly, and we look back in retrospect, um, you know, a lot of solo projects are developed, one outside, two is one or two people. They could be safely socially distanced while they work. And so um, as we go forward, I think that, that we're, we're working on trying to getting those, um, you know, up and running around the state. But we essentially, you know, COVID, at least in the state of New York, shut everything down. And so projects have not been moving, you know, at all. And, and so we're now, as we are beginning to um, reopen up our markets uh, here in, in the state of New York, um, we're slowly bringing those, those things on. And um, I'm, I've been pushing with the governor and his staff to make sure that solar projects have been at the top of those, those lists because it's really important both for our economy, um, but obviously um, in the context of our climate change, change goals, um, we have no time to waste. Yeah, thank you, Senator Parker. It's really encouraging to hear that at the legislative level, there is push to see the industry, which is core in all of our view to the essential nature of how we can progress on the energy transition that you are uh, pushing forward. And it's great to hear that the business community is standing behind it as well. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, Jim. I know that uh, probably as much uh, or more than anyone you're uh, on this panel, you've spent a lot of time ringing up uh, the folks that are in your constituency as someone who helps a ton of developers. It'd be good to hear what is the new reality for industry participants? We heard Senator Parker talk about uh, the, the stagnation that initially was felt, certainly in the Northeast. Is it accurate to say that deals have stalled? Um, are we moving to a, normal, a new normal or is the deal making still occurring? Yeah, it's a, an interesting dichotomy between deal making and construction and uh, you know, field operations. Um, deal making is actually... Understanding, as Senator Parker indicated, and I, and I think is, is a general consensus within the industry, um, the future of renewables is on solid ground. It's a great job creator, uh, post-COVID uh, post economic stimulus. Uh, uh, I, I think a lot of uh, our, our industry will be a great participant in the, in the recovery. And understanding that and the industry recognizing that, the deal-making continues at what I would call unprecedented levels. I, I'm seeing more deals across my desk than I've seen in the past. I think people are preparing for the future. I think they, there's a, uh, an understanding that there was and will be continuing delays and both from sub, uh, supply chain disruptions, um, debt providers, tax equity considerations. So I think there's, there's without a doubt, a, a delay and a, slow, and a slowdown in, in actual operations. But people are anticipating a robust uh, growth within our industry, and therefore the deal-making, the large deals continue to, uh, to flow. Well, that is, uh, as well, certainly encouraging. I wanted to circle back to Senator Parker on the topic of kind of how things are affecting the policy uh, before we proceed to what's happening furthermore in the development cycle. How are you seeing the overall economy affect, if at all, clean energy goals that have been established in particular by your renewable mandates in the state of New York? Well, one of the things actually that's become um, good news is that if everybody's been seeing the reports, actually the environment is now cleaner after the last two months of the world shutting down than it was, which is not necessarily good for you, Jim, because it may say we may not need solar. If we just 
keep the the whole hey, economy from not going like that. <laughs> that's, plan, that's plan B. That's plan B. To just shut everything down. Um, but you know, and so uh, I, th- I think that's worth saying because I, I think that it's important for us to because un- for a long time we've actually been arguing, right? Not people on this call, but generally in the, in the atmosphere and certainly with the with the national administration, the notion of climate change. And frankly, what we're seeing now from the reports around you know, the economy and ecology, right, that, that climate change is a real thing and that human beings are at the heart of the, the, the problems that we're seeing in terms of our environment and, and, and what that means, right, which, which makes this, this transition to a clean energy economy really crucial. Um, you know, we just have started opening up in the last two weeks here in the state of New York. Um, I think that the good news is that the economy wasn't in a bad place prior to closing. Unlike in 1932, when we had the depression, we have a number of social safety nets and economic um, guardrails that have kept the economy from hitting um, absolute rock bottom. Um, and I think that there, you know, people are ready to go and, and, and be engaged safely. Um, I'm always reminded that in, you know, that, that, the, that, that in every obstacle, there is an opportunity. And I think the opportunity here for people to understand how you actually engage in all the things that we engage in, in, in our communities from an economic perspective now in a COVID safe way, way. Right. And that's an economic opportunity, right? Like that's, that's going to be somebody's job at some point, right. To come in to somebody's restaurant or, or whatever and, and kind of figure that out or even come into somebody's solar development company and saying like, how do we install this stuff in a safe manner, right? Like that's going to literally be somebody's job. Um, and so I think there are economic opportunities. I mean, we got to remember that money is energy, right? And energy, you know, as, as, uh, as we're, as we're reminded in physics, you know, energy doesn't, doesn't disappear, right? It just reforms and recreates in another place. And so the, so the economy was slowed down. It wasn't stopped. Economic energy is really shifting into other areas, and, and in some areas in which, you know, you know, there were people who made money during this pandemic, right? If you were, you know, Amazon and, you know, Netflix and, you know, if you own Clorox, right, Lysol, like those, like those people, 3M, who made most of the, the surgical masks, all those folks, you know, they made money, right? Um, and so there are going to be more opportunities. And I think the same here. Uh, and I think that, that, that what has to happen both on the state level, but also obviously from the entrepreneurs is figure out what the what 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 has changed and what does the new normal look like in 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 a present COVID world. We're not even post COVID yet. In a in a presently COVID world, you know what does that look like and how do we we move to that? And I think certainly here in the state of New York, we are poised uh, to be flexible and to work with folks um, around these new business models. Fantastic, as they say, never let a good crisis go to waste. And right. I think that. I think that we're seeing uh, remarkable uh, results from sort of the, new, the latest data that's coming out. And we'll certainly get to some data on uh, on how the market is moving. But the latest data I'm seeing is that certainly on the residential side, folks had already begun to adapt to uh, online selling. Uh, and, you know, Lynn Jurek at Sunrun said that they're having one of the banner quarters. It is, as Jim suggested, uh, deals are happening. Right now, you know, one of the interesting things for, things for for me to reflect on, we've got our second poll up, but from the first poll, you know, of the over a hundred people on the webinar today, it looks like about a third uh, are in the CNI sector, which uh, falls right in line with 
how Saparna and Jim are executing their work. Uh, another third are in the utility sector. Uh, so Brian and Philip often talk to that market uh, exclu- extensively. Uh, we've got a, a handful uh, from finance, another handful in research and uh, what we categorize as others. So grateful to have uh, a really interesting broad spectrum of folks in the industry. I'd like to jump over to, uh, to Phil and Brian. Uh, start with Phil, uh, and the two are particularly knowledgeable about sort of current events related to the hardware side of the business and the tax equity side of the business. So, Phil, I'd like to invite you to give us a, a bit of insight into, um, from a policy perspective, ITC is one of the most important policies that we've all depended on to help give us a fighting chance and a fair shot at competing in the energy markets. Where do we see uh, ITC shaking out right now in terms of timing? Is anything going to expand or extend? And also, are there other hardware considerations like the recent bifacial module uh, exemption uh, or not, that uh, we need to be uh, considering from a policy perspective that might also move the needle on, in particular, the utility scale side of the business? Uh, as it relates to the ITC extension, um, you know, our, our latest conversations with folks in, in D.C. and so forth suggest you know, uh, maybe there could be something in the next bill. Uh, it seems like the, the next uh, uh, coronavirus response bill could be in, uh, in the next two or three months. But it's not a guarantee. And, you know, we, we've had a bunch of uh, uh, potential bites at the apple, but we uh, as an industry have not been able to lock down the ITC extension. We got very close, if you recall, with the tax bill back in December. Um, and uh, there was a lot of hope and um, effort put around the phase three bill that went into effect a month ago or so. But the reality is, you know, as uh, we get to more and more bill, the, the later the further along we go, uh, I think there's going to be more um, uh, or, or less uh, consensus between the GOP and the Dems to actually get something done. So my, my sense is, is my personal view on this is it's going to be tough. And uh, I think that what I hear is the GOP does not see the ITC extension as a direct solution to um, solving or, or uh, mitigating the impacts of the uh, coronavirus. And uh, if there were to be some paths to extension, one of them would be uh, through maybe a give and take between uh, solar and, and renewables uh, in exchange for oil and gas and, and the challenges that that industry has been going through. Another path that uh, could be taken might be um, through a, a, a local content requirement for the ITC. Uh, so uh, you know, those who employ local content may get a bit of an adder to the ITC. But again, you know, these are low probability type um, uh, uh, options, I think. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens. Shifting gears to the, the bifacial uh, exemption. Um, some of you guys may have noticed uh, a judge ruled against the removal of the bifacial exclusion. So recall, you know, a year ago, uh, the USTR put in place uh, an exclusion to the Section 201 tariffs. Uh, that was met with a lot of welcome by the industry to be able to access uh, bifacial modules uh, either directly from China or through Southeast Asia. That has been in place, and we've been seeing imports as a result of that. Realized it went against kind of what their goals were, and so they've been trying to remove this exclusion since October of last year. Uh, so they, they hit a bit of a road bump yesterday. The judge basically said, you know, you need to vacate your removal properly. And there's a bunch of things. 
uh, that the you, government has to remedy. But the bottom line here is that um, my my check suggests, and my my kind of inference in the situation is that you probably have uh, between one and six months as a range to continue to buy bifacial modules without the Section 201 tariff. My personal view is this will probably be removed completely in called two to three months. We wrote a piece about this yesterday. Uh, if you're interested in receiving that and other research from us, uh, uh, reach out to me. Uh, but the, the point here ultimately is that uh, you, there's a bit of a window here for you to access these bifacial modules. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I think the exemption for the 201 will be removed. Brian, you've been in the market for uh, a long time. You've seen a number of these policy <laughs> fluctuations come yeah. about, and you work with uh, you know a massive organization that has made a very concrete stand on distributed generation as a, a, a significant par- portion of your portfolio. What are you all seeing around uh, what's happening with ITC Safe Harbor or, or any other impacts or building off of what Phil was just discussing? So I'll just say quickly, just to put a framework around it. Yeah, I have been in the industry for 31 years. And during that period, I've been dealing with renewables and tax equity driven type structures, tax incentivized structures, my entire career, whether it be biomass, wind, solar, et cetera. And I was involved in uh, 2015, actually going in media and Capitol Hill with um, representatives and uh, senators as an active member with SIA. I actually had launched a solar development company after the, the last great recession. And one of my proudest times was putting about 500 people in New Jersey to work building solar projects that I was developing. So I've seen these types of environments. And what I will say right now is that um, we found that the renewable industry is largely led by uh, the very aggressive uh, stance of um, Senator Chuck Grassley with wind energy. And he's driven a lot of times the renewable energy incentives. And so what was news last night was that basically it looks like there'll be an extension of your ability to get your equipment through safe harbor extension to October. Whereas if you made a purchase in the fourth quarter of 2019, you had to have all of your equipment delivered and everything within three and a half months into 2020. And it's looking like what came through last night from one of the law firms we deal with uh, is that that extension may run till October. Uh, I think a lot of us were speculating maybe they would just do a one-year shift where you take the 26% ITC year in the phase down and just um, shift it one year. But it's looking like um, this is the policy being proposed by the senators. It's a bipartisan, like Senator Murkowski is in on this. So um, that probably has some pretty strong traction. As What happened about two, three weeks ago, there was a letter to Treasury from, I think, Chuck Grassley, asking for some relief from renewables. And we've been waiting to hear what would happen next. And so um, from PPL standpoint, we did take a strategy of safe harboring equipment. So, you know, large corporations like um, PPL uh, seek to use their balance sheets for these types of um, uh, tax-driven opportunities. So we were looking at it from perspective, of course, of whether it was better or worse for us <laughs> to have 2021 also be a 26 percent 
because you know the margin from 30% to 26% when you run all the numbers and depending if spot module prices dip. So there's this whole question now of what the demand supply balance is going to be with modules and what module prices will be like in 2021. And when you do all the math with 30% versus 26% ITC. So we were trying to ascertain how that might actually work out for those of us that had taken a strategy of safe harboring, you know, a large inventory. So it, it's looking like we're getting less of an ambitious um, relief package, you might say, uh, with regard to this um, simple extension. It'll be interesting to see if this is ultimately, you know, what we get. I think that SIA and others are probably looking to try to get something else in some of the policy that's being made, but this was a direct appeal to the Treasury in the context of the ITC. An additional six-month uh, extension uh, is better than nothing, for sure. Uh, certainly with uh, supply chain impacts, uh, and I know we'll talk a bit about that with Phil in a bit in a, in a few. A lot of developers have been have been wondering uh, what's this all going to mean. Um, to that end, in fact. Based on our second poll, you know, I just want to give you guys a quick insight. The general notion uh, seems like maybe about 10% of folks are thinking uh, about challenges around permits and uh, similar restrictions holding back projects. A lot of folks about the same amount are looking at tax equity and the financing outlook. Those questions uh, we, we intend to answer uh, in deep detail here today. It does seem like a few of you are out there wondering about reduced demand or concerned about reduced demand for new projects. Um, you know, with that in mind, I'd like to Saparna. Saparna has been in the CNI and utility scale development market and, and in fact started in around residential hardware for a long time as well, 15 or more years. Uh, Saparna, how has InterSolar's business been directly affected by this pandemic? And what are you seeing on the ground related to some of these fears some of your colleagues are expressing? Yeah, no, I think we're we're seeing some of these same impacts. So if you look at our business, we're a fully turnkey developer and we work across the country. We have done projects in 18 states, although the largest part of our portfolio is in the Northeast. And we work primarily for corporate customers. So uh, we are seeing, if you look at the front end of our business, on that end, we are seeing projects get pushed out to next year, there's a lot of concern um, from some customers, just as Senator Parker said, you know, the first two weeks, kind of there was a lot of fear and unknown. And so things got shut down and we've been ramping back up on both sides since then. So but we do see a lot of our core corporate customers are focusing their resources towards their core businesses. And even though renewables is part of the bigger picture. They're delaying on some of those projects and not doing them this year. So we are seeing a bit of a downward trend. And I think that's in keeping with the industry projections as well. I know uh, Wood McKenzie kind of projected that they, they dropped their project in, in half for 2020 for the CNI space. So hopefully we won't see it quite that big an impact, but, but we are seeing that in our business at Solar. And then you see the back end of our business, which is actually building projects for customers, getting out there in the field. And we've had to make a lot of changes operationally to, to deal with that. Every Everybody is impacted with going remote, no longer being in an office-based environment, but also 
how we're building projects, how um, making sure that it's being done in a safe manner to protect all of our people, protect customers. And so we've implemented a lot of changes uh, to make sure everyone has PPE, that processes are so that people are, are kind of working well spaced out in dedicated teams, limited crews, so that from that perspective, everyone is, is safe. And now I would say we're up and we're back up and running probably at, at regular pace. Um, across, we're operating everywhere except for New York City and, and Boston right now in terms of construction. Um, and we're back up at pace. The places where we're seeing a lot of slowdown is when we're dealing with local AHJs and utilities. And that's where we've seen slowdown in terms of some of the townships are are not at all used to being remote. You know, you give plans in hard copy. Typically, we give a, one plan for, for reviews. Now we have to give multiple. They can't pass things around. Um, and so we've seen a lot of lag at kind of the front end of the project and the back end of the project. And we need to close it out and, and work with the utilities and the um, local townships. So I think it's consistent with what the audience is seeing. And it sounds like you're seeing as well what Jim is saying, that new development, new business, folks still looking forward to the reality that we're having a massive conversion to clean energy is very much alive and well. Uh, it is those nearer term projects that are seeing uh, the impact that many expected. Yeah. Yes. I, I think it's just it's not that they won't do them, but maybe not right now. Right. So they're getting mm -hmm. pushed out a little bit. Would you be able to give us at least an overview of how you see the utility scale and CNI markets being uh, impacted broadly. Um, we could talk a bit more about some of the supply chain impacts here, but also tax equity is an area that Roth covers quite in depth. I'll speak to the tax equity aspects. And just, just to be clear, you know, uh, we're not a tax equity player and, and we don't, um, you know, I, I just, through my channel checks, I'm able to glean kind of what's going on out there. I'm sure Brian has a perspective as well. And Keith Martin really is in my, uh, the, a, a critical expert in, in the space. And they hosted a call, uh, or he hosted a call, I think, last week. And, um, you know, through the work that we've done, it sounded like last year was a tax equity had about $10 billion um, uh, of overall uh, value. Uh, I think from Keith's webinar, he talked about maybe $12 billion. Uh, my check suggested that this year, pre-COVID, we would have had seen a market of $15 billion for tax equity, and that would be a combination of both solar and wind. Um, I think Keith uh, and his webinar and his guests talked about the same thing. Uh, now, what the key question is what's happening post-COVID. You know, last year, a big part of uh, the tax equity market were two firms, you know, Bank of America and J.P. Morgan. And I think they've represented about half of that 12, 12 ish billion or 10 to 12 billion, we'll call it five to six billion. This year, it sounds like one player alone, maybe four and a half billion, uh, one of those banks. So, so that's big. Uh, and I think that helps to offset some of the losses that we are likely going to see. So, uh, not to name names or anything, but there are companies out there that, you know, used to do, you know, call it two to 400 million of tax equity a year uh, last year, let's say. And this year, they were expecting to ramp up, but they're literally going to do zero. And so there, there are going to be many, a number of those players that are going to do zero tax equity this year, but maybe the big boys like you know Bank of America, J.P. Morgan can step in and fill some of that void. But ultimately, you know, uh, instead of uh, you know, through my checks, 
uh, post-COVID or presently with COVID, as uh, Senator uh, Parker was referring to, you know, we um, will likely see a year this year that's maybe flat, maybe slightly down relative to 19. So is that 10 or 12 billion? It's a little bit unclear to me. But that's kind of how I see uh, the slice of the capital stack playing out. Uh, so I'll pass it back to you, Nico, to you, Nico, if you want to dig into anything specifically. Yeah, thanks. And I also just want to remind uh, uh, everyone, I mean, our esteemed panel uh, have uh, lots of uh, their own sort of perspectives and opinions. So uh, you guys are welcome to jump in on any of these questions uh, if you do have a comment. I'll just respond on that, Nico. And I'll say that never before this, relationships mattered more. Um, so if you're, if you're a large company or a large player in the industry and you already have established relationships with tax equity folks, that's what really makes the difference. If you're a, a, a developer that is out there now looking for your first tranche of tax equity, this is not the time. I can actually speak to that a little as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, at Radiant Re, we obviously we have a, a product that uh, combines tax equity debt and, and addresses the entire capital stack. And uh, I can speak to large projects still have access to the tax equity markets, uh, small and mid-sized projects. Small projects are, are basically there's, there's no market left, there's zero market, um, unless you have you know, small high net worth individuals that you're dealing with, which goes to what Brian was saying in the relationships. Um, mid-size, very limited. Uh, I think the key players that are playing in the mid-size, in the mid-size market now are, are basically, it's their market. So they're getting five, 10 deals in front of them and they're getting to cherry pick the deals that, uh, that best suit their needs. And the large scale, uh, I think, you know, the Bamels and the Morgans, they're, they're going to continue the, uh, as Phil said, to, to pick up some of that slack but bear in mind when they're picking up that slack it's on the on the gross basis it's still not going to flow all the way down to those small and, and mid-sized developers yeah it's interesting to um kind of see how that supply of tax equity is going to line up with the <clears throat> demand in it i know from the business we do historically probably 70 80 percent of our projects were directly owned by our corporate customers and now with COVID, um, a lot of projects, you know, instead of maybe postponing them, customers who were considering owning them are switching to considering a PPA or a third-party financing. And, um, and so that demand is increasing as, as we're talking about the supply of tax equity dropping. You go, I'd like to bring up another issue that is prevalent, I think, and Senator Parker can probably chime on this is that typically we look at a municipal credit that's a double A and you say, okay, that's probably a pretty good credit risk to, to take this project because PPL, we buy projects to own, operate for their life cycle, right? But in the era of COVID, there's a lot of uncertainty as to what municipal financial situations are gonna be like. So it's going to be quite challenging here going forward, trying to understand what the underlying credits are that we're dealing with. You no, know, I agree. I think that, uh, I mean, all this is going to be a challenge, right? Everybody right now is broke, except for Jim. But everybody else, the rest of us, you know, are trying to figure out what we're going to, you know, what we're going to do. The state of New York, again, I'm going to speak to the state of New York. And I know that we have an unusual circumstance, but it's not so unusual in this particular context. The governor is quoting a number of about $13.5 billion worth of deficit that we have right now. The city of New York, I know, is in an additional $4 billion worth of deficit. And I know a lot of our counties are in deficit as well. There is no taxation 
that we can do internally that gets us a, to a $13.5 billion deficit that, that fills that hole. And so every city, every municipality in the state of New York is going to be in a crunch, right? And so they're going to be looking to hold on to core services, you know, education, you know, healthcare, right? And things, frankly, like tax credits for any kind of business are going to be tertiary, right, at best. And so right now, the big that's why the big push is on the federal government to do another relief package that's directed towards the states so that the core services that states provide can be secured. And then that way we then have a little wiggle room in order to do economic development. Um, but, you know, it, you know, and, and that's part of why, you know, Governor Cuomo was in D.C. literally yesterday speaking with the president um, about this and about how do we, we, we get everything kind of back on track. Although I believe that access to financing is less of a problem in this space. I'm not saying it isn't, but that's less of a problem than some of the regulatory things that we're dealing with in, in, in the state of New York, at least. And again, other states may be different. Um, we have a number of regulatory problems that has been, you know, gumming up the works. We did some, um, we created a new process and a, and a new office uh, within the Department of the Office of the Secretary of State uh, in our budget process back in April that we believe will um, help facilitate and, and grease the skids. You know, we had to, to kind of streamline the work around our Environmental Protection Office and, you know, really do something such that when you're coming in and you're trying to do multiple projects in our state, that you're not running into 117 different sets of regulations around putting up a, putting up a solar panel. And so we're still in the, in the midst of that. And frankly, I think those regulatory challenges, at least in my experience and the conversations I'm having with people looking to do projects in the state of New York, are more more of a problem than access to capital. I'll speak to the, to the credit issue as well. Um, one of the things that, uh, as we're underwriting different CNI, which is a good part of our business, as we're underwriting the CNI applications now, our underwriters are looking carefully at the industries of the off-takers, even if they have the, the uh, IG or investment grade uh, uh, ratings, there's going to be a lot of industries post-COVID that that are going to have are going to be impacted more than other industries, as the senator said in, in the early uh, part of the webinar. Um, so we're looking at specific industries and rating differently. Even though they're investment grade, we still are considering either credit supports or rating up different uh, uh, industries. So you have to be careful when you're even as, with Saparn as you're out. Uh, looking for those those corporate offtakes, um, we have to be a little bit careful in the industries that we start uh, prospecting in now. Um, it's going to be more difficult to get financing in certain types of, for example, look at the, the hospitality industry. That's going to be a very difficult industry, uh, despite the fact that they might have had a, a investment grade rate. So we got to be a little bit more careful in, as solar developers as well in looking at what our target developments are from a credit perspective. I think all of us probably went through uh, the last economic downturn. Uh, one of the promise that we gave to the audience today is that we would bring in some reflection on what we learned from the 08 global financial crisis. The last downturn took a massive hit on real estate. Obviously, underlying credit risk disappeared or you know, was very challenging to assess, made it very difficult for companies like Sun Edison, Solar City, and others that were growing at the time to maintain. Uh, I wonder what reflections 
based on our experience of the past, thinking about the very good points that the panelists have made here around how we're going to, uh, how we're thinking about policy, how we're thinking about business structures. Are there innovations that we are seeing right now in the marketplace or actually realities we're seeing in the marketplace that perhaps reflect, uh, we could learn from the OA crisis and improve and accelerate our recovery from the current crisis? I'll make a couple of comments we're seeing in the industry with regard to we're seeing a real change in demand, right? So what we, we've experienced in the last few months is 15 to 20 percent reduction in industrial commercial demand and a six, nine percent increase in residential demand. And yet, you know, utility revenues are still you know pretty stable. So what we're seeing is one, this whole questioning of what is going to happen with the large office commercial environment situation um, as we come out of this, obviously. And we're also seeing a shift in the way that energy is used. And I think it might be bold to say we may see an acceleration of renewable energy as a result of this, because when you look through the economics of the power system, the large central generation plants are having even more difficult time economically in this in this change demand profile on top of already you know the we'll put it this way the the environmental push that's been happening in the last number of years despite you know the lack of direct federal legislation but you're seeing we own coal plant right so ppl is ppl in pennsylvania it's lg&e and ku in kentucky where we're vertically integrated and we still have on the order of 6,000 megawatts of coal. And we are in the UK, where we're on the window of the future in the UK is one of the most deregulated markets in the world that is progressing with regard to energy storage, offshore wind and everything. So we see a pretty broad picture of PPL. And what we're seeing, of course, is an acceleration of older baseload generation probably being retired. The other comment I would like to make is that before this happened, Two of the largest job categories were solar installer and wind technician. And with, I don't know what the numbers are after today. We had another 2 million filed <clears throat> unemployment today. I understood this morning that we're somewhere 30 plus million, 35 million people unemployed, don't know exactly if they're going back to what they were doing. I would have to argue that there is never more an opportune time for job training and transition of people to renewable energy. I'll add a little uh, color to to uh, the topic here as well. Um, during the 08 uh, market crash, uh, uh, we were in the real estate business at Spano Partners, my my uh, other company. And at the time, we we were uh, just dabbling in renewable energy more from from a marketing perspective than, a, than an economic perspective. As the real estate industry came to a crashing halt which uh, looking forward, we, we have some concerns with office space going forward as well. But back to the subject, as we got concerned about the real estate industry and the, you know, we were real, we were land developers. So that was the hardest hit sector of the real estate industry. What we learned and what we were able to do was repurpose a lot of our properties. And in this instance, we repurposed them as, as uh, solar plants, which is what got me into the solar industry. And I think that today, similarly, and, and I think somebody in the, in the webinar mentioned it earlier, um, maybe Senator Parker, that uh, 
energy doesn't disappear and money doesn't disappear. It gets reallocated. What we saw back then is the real estate market took the hit and the renewable industry basically is what enabled me to recover from it. Today, I think we're in the, I don't think the renewable industry is going to take a hit, as I said earlier. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of other industries that are going to take a hit. And I think you're going to see a lot of movement and a lot of that money is going to move and shift from one industry to another. Um, and that goes to my concern about the credit issue that I mentioned earlier. Um, but I think cumulatively, that shift means that there's opportunity. And when I went from the real estate industry and repurposed all of my properties as solar plants from real estate developments, that was the opportunity that I was able to take advantage of. Now what business needs to do is they have to look at the opportunities, what this shift has, where the money will flow as a result of the change in our behaviors and in how we conduct business. So I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity going forward. And I think if you're in this industry, in the rural industry, there's a, a, uh, a very, very bright future. Hey, for my commercial solar warriors out there, do you sometimes feel like prospects are treating you like a dollar per watt commodity? Instead of a race to the bottom, why not add more value to your proposals by including DemandX load flexibility software from Extensible Energy? You can use intelligent AI software to monitor solar production and shift the usage patterns of HVAC and other flexible loads. The result is increased savings on energy charges, demand charges, time of use charges, and that makes you and your proposal stand out from the crowd. Who doesn't want that? You can learn all about DemandX and how you can include load flexibility software as part of your proposals at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And as a bonus, you'll get free load flexibility analysis, sales training, and info on how you can even white label DemandX for your solar company. So go ahead, stand out with DemandX from Extensible Energy. This episode is also brought to you by Adani Solar USA, a fully integrated renewables company from solar sale and module manufacturing to project ownership and operation. Adani has an impressive operating and contracted pipeline of over 14 gigawatts of solar energy projects and recently received the largest solar award ever of eight gigawatts. It's mind blowing. And it includes a single site project of two gigawatts, which itself is tied for the world's largest. No one knows mega scale projects like Adani. If you'd like to work with Adani, go to mysuncast.com forward slash Adani, A-D-A-N-I, and fill out the information request form and we'll put you in touch with their local team. Senator Parker, in particular, you know, policy has been uh, a huge driver for, for New York to just burst onto the scene in the last three, four years. Uh, as chairman, uh, as we mentioned, of the uh, Energy and Tele- Telecom Committee, I'd love to hear what role do you see solar playing specifically in the revitalization of energy and job growth or the economy? Yeah, Nico, both Brian and Jim are making absolutely the right points that there are, again, there is opportunity The question, where is that opportunity? I think Brian has really identified one of the key points, which is that you could be the leader, not in just petty bourgeois capitalism, but in really being job creators across the country. And, um, and we're talking about full-time jobs at a living wage with benefits, right? And, 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 and you know, as we know here on this webinar, that green-collar jobs are nothing but white-collar jobs and blue-collar jobs with a green purpose, right? And so that, they, that these jobs run the spectrum, right? And so if you're looking to put, back, put people back uh, to work fast, 
and safely, right? Because many of these jobs, right? You know, some of them are office jobs, but many of these jobs are in communities and there's ways that you can, in fact, do it safely in a COVID period, right? This becomes a way. And me representing a community that's primarily um, African-American and Latinx people, this is particularly, again, in that those communities have been, who've been hit hardest by both COVID and by the economic realities that are going to be following the shut, you know, the slowdown of the economy. Um, this speak, this, this definitely speaks, speaks to it. So um, I had a bill that I actually passed back in 2009 called, called the Green Collar Jobs Bill. We took um, $113 million worth of um, what we call Reggie money, regional greenhouse gas initiative money, the cap and trade money, and use that to retrofit a million, a million homes over five years, right? I'm actually introducing, along with uh, Alicia Barton, the, the head of NYSERDA, um, you know, our kind of lead agency on, on uh, sustainable development uh, in the state of New York, um, a new version of that bill to do something similar. And what's exciting about it is that when you do these kind of, you know, this is, again, this is not specifically just solar, but this is hand in hand, right? Because you have to, you have to, if you're going to put, you know, a, a solar pro- project in, part of the larger dynamic of making a green collar or clean energy economy is to retrofit homes and to get, um, you know, your infrastructure. And in the Northeast, we have a lot of old buildings, including my house. So if anybody wants to retrofit my house, um, (laughs) hit me in the chat. But, you know, we have so many buildings that need to be retrofitted. When you do that, you're creating full-time jobs at a living wage with benefits, right? You are lowering the energy bills of people whose homes have been retrofitted. You're lowering your, your carbon footprint. Right. And so all three, three, all three things are happening. And they're typically in most states, there are dedicated funds for 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 these projects already in pipelines. They can't be used for other things anyway um, before they get swept by desperate state and local municipalities. I think Brian is making absolutely the right point um, that Nico that you expanded on, which is that this this is a real great opportunity to pass legislation like that and get our economy um, up and going. I'm curious, what are the trends to watch for? We've talked a lot about the macro environment, how it's going to be impacted, the importance of revitalization through economic stimulus, through legislation. So Parna, I know that as a company that both services and uh, owns projects, perhaps you have some perspective on third-party ownership. Certainly, corporates may be taking a different tack as they focus on core business, um, are, are different economic models like PPA is going to be uh, phasing out or pace. What are we going to see as an impact to the overall business model as a trend moving forward over the next 18 months? Yeah, um, I think I alluded to it before, but a lot of our corporate customers historically preferred to own solar assets. And that has been steadily shifting away. But I think COVID is accelerating that shift as Um, companies want to keep their capital for core business purposes and strategic purposes. So now the third-party financing is much more attractive to them. And and we've seen a big jump in our portfolio in terms of the fraction of projects, which are are third-party financed through a PPA versus, you know, directly purchased by a customer. So it's becoming over half of, of our business now. It used to be, you know, at one time, only 20% maybe of our projects that customers would choose to third-party finance. So. Actually interesting, that might 
that might also speak to why Radiant REIT is seeing so much activity. Um, yeah. As more customers switch over to that third-party model, they're looking for financing, and, and we've seen a tremendous uh, uptick in activity in the last couple of months. Yeah, no, absolutely. We've had a lot of projects in the pipeline where customers had planned to purchase the project directly and are now switching to a PPA approach, restructuring it as a PPA approach. I have a question, but if I can, for, for Suparna. Are your thoughts that your customers are switching over? You mentioned because obviously cash is king during times like this, so they want to they want to keep the cash in the in the uh, uh, for the core business. Mm-hmm. But is is the tax consideration, or are these corporations concerned that they won't have the tax liability, and therefore the third yeah. party ownership model is also attractive? Yeah, that's another factor, absolutely, Jim, because they don't know what their tax liability will be. It it does, as you brought up, it depends on the industries they're in, right? And what's their business look like? I I know one of the customers who recently switched to third-party finance is in the the food industry, Um, you know, and so cash is is tight. Their business is still doing okay, but they're managing their cash very carefully and they're not sure what their tax liability will be. So both of those factors, I think, making sure... They're strategic about how they're using the cash, but also an awareness of what a big factor the the tax benefit component of the economics is and whether they'll be able to take that advantage of that themselves or not. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. Whereas with the PPA, they can lock in the benefits from solar, you know, and- and In the energy savings, yeah. Yeah, the energy savings. So they've got an operational savings that they're locking in. You know, as we saw like 2008 crisis come in, we saw in many ways a savior of the solar industry, uh, you know, massive drop in hardware pricing, namely solar modules. Everyone, uh, solar energy storage is on their lips. Practically every project is slated for at least contemplation of whether solar. Uh, Phil, I know you guys do an incredible amount of research around how the supply chain uh, can be impacted and how it moves the needle for developers. I wonder if we have any module pricing outlook that might be beneficial as we round out the conversation. And certainly would welcome the rest of you panelists to also drop in any questions or trends that you see happening after Phil. Sure. Uh, happy to speak to that topic, Nico. Thanks. Um, you know, I'll start kind of with, with a global perspective, then get into a quick U.S. dynamic, and then kind of give you a, maybe a zinger from left field that maybe most people are not watching out for. So specifically, you know, there's clearly oversupply and overcapacity. Uh, even uh, in the face of um, coronavirus, uh, the, the Chinese uh, manufacturing complex has been expanding capacity. So when the demand destruction hits and has hit, um, we're, we're seeing uh, pricing uh, uh, fall. Uh, so specifically in the U.S., uh, what we're what I heard yesterday from um, from a buyer is that pricing is down to as low as thirty three to thirty four cents for you know model perk uh, utility scale uh, per watt, and uh, you know th- there's probably room for that to go down uh, a little more. Um, ultimately, you know, uh, there's another dynamic that is not just coronavirus driven. So at the end of last year, as everyone knows, there was a bunch of safe harboring of product, and that basically created an air pocket of you know demand for for this year as well. So independent of coronavirus, we probably would have seen um, some weakness in pricing. Uh, now the question is, will we see safe harboring at the end of this year? You know, there's hope for that. I was on the phone with the 
uh, Kenia Solar today, and they, they obviously would like to see that, and, and all the manufacturers would. My sense is um, folks are going to find other ways to safe harbor besides uh, just using panels. Uh, the the zinger I was referring to is you know just keep your eyes out for um, more trade issues ahead. So with the the bifacial kind of situation yesterday from that judge, you know, refusing to allow the Trump administration to remove the um, exemption for the Section 201. You know, we would I would not be surprised to see other trade actions come to light in the near term. Uh, you, you know, maybe there could be tariffs on the Southeast Asian manufacturing complex. And so, as you guys may uh, know that, you know, most of the modules we get in the U.S. comes from Southeast Asia. And so there could be tariffs at some point there. So watch out for that as a potential um, risk for your uh, purchases ahead. Speaking here a little bit too, I, our experience, and obviously we're underwriting, you know, uh, literally gigawatts worth of worth of projects now, and and looking at the the uh, pricing of, of existing projects versus new projects, I, the, the numbers that Phil was speaking of thirty three thirty four cents. I think today that's pretty much the the norm. I actually think that we're going to see a further decrease in pricing as a result of the um, oversupply and the delay. I think the combination of the safe harboring oversupply and then the delay of, of installation because of the uh, COVID situation, I think that's going to create a surplus of, of, uh, of uh, supply. And I, and I think that will drive pricing down a little bit. So to Brian's earlier statement, when you're looking at safe harboring and you're weighing the reduction in the value of the decreased IPC against the increased cost of, I'm sorry, the decreased, potential decreased cost of the panels, I think to a large degree, one's going to offset the other, but that's that's to be seen. Yeah, I'll just say that at the present prices and the, um, you know, we have inventory carry costs, and of course we purchase them when everybody else has purchased them, so the, they're higher price in the inventory, but the math is still working out for 30% today. We're concerned that maybe modules go to 25 cents. There's, you know, some stuff out there. I think GTM put something out there a week or two ago that showed a supply balance um, relationship. It suggested something like 26, 25, 26 cents potentially. Now, the question is, is that just a global pricing, right? So we have to overlay the U.S. tariffs. And I think people know, essentially, they said if you build a project in the U.K. versus the United States, it's 30% cheaper in the U.K. <laughs> That's the economics of U.S. solar. Well, one last uh, quick point. You know, I was on the phone again with Canadian Solar, and they talked about uh, on their earnings call this morning that they could still see uh, pricing be weak in Q2 and Q3 and for things to kind of bottom out of Q4. So just to round that all out, you know, we there's probably some more downside potential. Fantastic. We do have uh, a quick question I want to throw out here that I think is pertinent and uh, that certainly at least one or more of you can take a swing at. This is from Paige Gravely, so I'll throw it up here. How does an industry, in particular a developer like Paige and his company who focus on nonprofits, uh, help get their customers to shore up their credit standing so that the capital in the market actually uh, becomes favorable or can can consider them as candidates? That's an interesting question. How does an industry, as opposed to participants within the industry? Mm-hmm. I don't really know. I think the, as an industry, you really can't shore up your credit. That's really, as an industry, it's really how the market is responding to your particular industry and what 
uh, industry you're in and how that's involved in the economy at the, at the time. I would take it down one level and say, how does an industry participant shore up their credit? Because individual companies can do things that in, as an industry whole, you can't. And I think as a as a individual industry participant, you there's uh, the way to shore up your credit, aside from the typical you know, reduce debt, increase your equity position, you know, shore up your balance sheet, you know, the standard type stuff. But from a from a solar perspective, one area to, to shore up uh, or to to uh, tighten up your your credit is not necessarily to qualify for solar, but so installing solar and reducing your your opex, your operating expenses. Uh, obviously, that would shore up your your credit. Another consideration, and and I know that there's a a lot of companies out there now, and, and I'm going to throw this out to the audience and the developers out there that I think can really benefit from this. Given the the real estate industry and the office rents and the uh, retail uh, uh, revenues that have been decreased, um, there's a lot of real estate owners and lessors that are are in serious distress on their rental income payments or on their mortgage payments. Um, One of the answers is entering into a solar lease and having negotiating a pre-lease payment or a prepaid lease payment so that you can shore up the customer's cash flows during during a period where they're not receiving their rental income or they're accepting deferred rental payments or deferring their, their rental payments. If you're deferring three, six months worth of rental payments and somebody can come in and provide you a couple of years of prepaid leases on your on, on a solar system, on your roof, on your ground, that cash flow coming in with no expense attributed to it um, will certainly support uh, uh, the cash outflow or the, the lack of cash inflow coming from your rental, you know, money coming in or out. Basically, what solar is going to do, a prepaid lease is going to do is it's going to provide significant cash flow relief to businesses that are experiencing cash flow stresses. Approaching a corporate owner like Suparna does and suggesting to them that if you're going to go the PPA model, we will uh, or even leasing your rooftop, we will prepay, as opposed to giving you a discount on your power, I'll prepay the lease and put cash in your pocket that will offset the negative cash flow that you've experienced as a result of your tenants or uh, uh, yeah, you know, the, the lack of, of uh, income coming in on your, on your real estate. You know, we've seen a big movement with RE100, a big movement uh, by local leadership, uh, I'll say despite lack of leadership at the national level on many on many fronts, Senator Parker and uh, New York have been have placed a firm flag in the ground, uh, have shored up what at one time might have been considered sifting sand uh, towards renewable policies. So how do we reflect uh, moving forward on the leadership that we expect on a regional local level from policy versus national policy? And where might we see movement versus retrenchment moving forward? Many of you uh, are more than just local uh, regional players. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what uh, those of us who are uh, eagerly watching and hearing your reflections might be able to glean about where we can place emphasis or impact with our own dollars and our own uh, efforts. Well, first of all, uh, again, thank you all for um, including me in this very uh esteemed panel of folks who are, you know, experts and that just to have little old me on this call is, is really, uh, you know, a big deal for me. So I appreciate it and enjoy 
learning a lot of is about the industry. So again, thank you uh, for this opportunity. Um, I want to commend uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of the state of New York. Um, his briefings, um, I think, have been great. And I think how he's led us through this period has been important. I'm glad that he's taken all the advice and all the memos I've sent him and he's implemented and said them word for word at his briefings. Hope he continues to do so. Uh, <laughs> um, but like, I think, do think that what this COVID experience is showing us is the real power of federalism. And this is not a political science professor and me coming out, which is that really the name of the game is the, the states, right? And, and if you're looking for a national strategy on solar or sustainable energy, um, you know, over any time in the next year or two, I don't think that you're going to see it, literally. I think that you're, you're, you're better off operating and organizing on a state-by-state -state level. And I think that Jim will attest to the success of that, at least for his company. And I think here in the state of New York, it's really about like, you know, looking at the places in which people are committed to a clean energy economy, where people are committed to a green collar workforce, where people are committed to, you know, um, making this part of, the, of their, not just their energy policy, but their economic development strategy. And I think those are the places in which you want to begin to organize and, and play. And I think as you start to see success, the success model, will model success. And so it'll be a race to the top. And so, um, I want to invite you to, you know, come to New York and let's start here so we can show the rest of the country how it's done. Jim, we'll figure out how to get you across the river um, <laughs> or something. Uh, but, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's going to be in, important for you kind of just stake out a number of states that are doing this work, you know, um, work with them around their, around their, um, their economic development strategies about where their incentives are, um, how how their workforce is positioned. Um, but then also, as I indicated before, the regulations that are in place that slow up development and figuring out how do we work through those issues to both make sure that 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 you're providing full-time jobs at, at a living wage of benefits, but then also simultaneously that we're protecting the environment as we try to Im implement this clean, um, uh, clean energy standard. And... Um, you know, and and give local control um, some voice, right? Um, you know, part of the problem is that you know you have all these localities that um, are interested in in having some self determination about how how their communities are run, and I don't blame them for that. But that is a, a hindrance in obviously um, you know the you know the policies of of developing a clean energy economy and making and particularly with solar. Uh, wind has a similar problem, but particularly solar has has that problem. And so working through those issues and giving us some guidance about how we get to those things, um, I think is going to be an important activity for this industry to be engaged in. I think, yeah, let, let me just add a little comment here. I think I've emphasized with all of my development community for the last several years the importance of uh, getting involved in policy. Um, I've spent a lot of time with Kevin. Uh, Kevin is, a, is obviously a very solid uh, solar advocate. Um, but that's what you need to do is you need to, to get to know your legislators, educate them, help them to understand the value and, and the approaches and the policies that are necessary to meet the particular state's goals. I've gone from state to state to state. I've met with several different uh, 
legislators and so forth, always looking to promote solar and to assist some of our developers in promoting solar. So I think if the, if the industry gets more involved from a, from a uh, policy perspective, and we need to support our legislators, uh, even at Radiant Reef, we have a list of what we call solar states, states that are solar friendly states that we know that we're going to see a significant amount of business with. So as we look at our geographic uh, allocation of, of, of our uh, assets, of our capital, we, we recognize that there's going to be a concentration on those particular states. Um, however, I think that as, as those states demonstrate, New York, New Jersey, California, as those states demonstrate the value and the, and the, the continuing increasing efficiencies of how these systems are being brought in, both from a policy perspective, as well as from a technology development finance perspective. I think we're gonna see a, uh, a lot more states uh, uh, interested in, in supporting the green economy, even in the, in the blue states. Uh, obviously the red states are, are um, I'm sorry, even in the red states, obviously the blue states are already um, in the longer, if, if, in fact, look at solar, along our shorelines, we're, we're, we're pretty much blue. Um, that's where a bulk of our of our solar development spend. We need to collapse that into the center of the country, and in order to get there, we need to have the the policies and the the experiences that have been learned from the states that have taken the initial leadership. Um, and and I'll speak to New Jersey real quickly. We're now looking at changing our poli our entire solar program. What are we doing? We're looking at New York. We're looking at Massachusetts. We're looking at what other states have done, and we're saying let's pick out. We've learned from what other people have done, and we'll, we'll try and come up with a, a hybrid of the best policies that we can come up with. And as we develop our policies, the Midwest will follow behind, and they'll improve on those policies as well. They'll see where we fail, where we maybe miss the boat. Um, none of us can really anticipate the future perfectly. We're in an emerging industry, an emerging market, a transformation of the entire energy uh, infrastructure. So there's going to be a lot of learning that's going to be done. And um, I'm, I'm, I want to actually give kudos to New York and Senator Parker for the leadership that, uh, that they've demonstrated and the um, successes that they've demonstrated. And hopefully the rest of the states will pay attention. So I can comment. Uh, I would reach back to my, my background even before power. I was involved with infrastructure finance. And that meant financing water and wastewater, particularly at the time, and dealing with cities like Bridgeport, Connecticut, which were under extreme financial distress in the 1980s. And the theme was doing more with less. And I think the theme for the municipal government, state governments, is going to be doing more with less. And I think that perhaps renewable energy is going to be a path to um, achieving more uh, in in sense of new infrastructure, so I'm I'm a longtime Virginian. My watered down Boston accent is from uh, when I was a kid up in the Boston area. But I've spent much of my life in Virginia. Moved recently to Allentown, and joining PPL recently. I've I've been in this industry a long time, but a lot of it in Virginia. And I'm going to be on the Virginia Executive Committee for Sustainability in the Environment that I just recently joined and will meet with. And it's very interesting to see, you know, the transformation that Virginia has gone through in just the past one to two years. And, and, and I have seen the whole cycle. My early career began doing coal co-generation power plants in Virginia in the late 1980s. 
it's going to be very interesting to see what the perspectives are. All of these different companies, uh, basically household Fortune 500 type companies that are on this committee. And one of the things that we're hoping is that this crisis doesn't put a huge dent in the sustainability ambitions of a lot of corporations that are not in the energy sector. Energy is not their business. Something else is their business, but they're concerned with saving energy. They're concerned with being good corporate citizens. For many of them, the perception is that comes with a price. And we're going to have to find out if this COVID situation has made the cost of sustainability prohibitive for some. It's going to be interesting. On Pennsylvania, I would like to say that Pennsylvania, as I understand, if I have the statistics right, is the second worst job losses in the nation, only because California is huge. Um, in a percentage basis, Michigan was number one and Pennsylvania number two. Pennsylvania is going to have, I think, quite a challenging time here coming back. You know, it built itself out of the last financial crisis in the fracking industry. There's no secret about that. Pennsylvania it totally went to where the opportunity was from to, to the reconcile their balance sheet. And so um, I think that uh, it will be very interesting to see the path that Pennsylvania takes coming out of this. Thanks, everyone, for all the great conversation and discussion. And, and especially do you want to thank you, Senator Parker, for all the work that New York has been doing and kind of leading by example on the solar and renewables front. And I think as we talked about the last three years, um, push has, has shifted from federal to state and local governments in terms of driving renewables. Um, and there's one other player I just wanted to bring up and that's all of us as consumers. So us as consumers, the corporates that, that we work with are also a big player. You know, so many of them have set large renewable targets right. for themselves and continue to do that and drive their peers. And so even outside of Jim's uh, solar friendly states, we do, as I mentioned, we do work, we've done work across 18 states in the country. Many of them are not solar friendly, um, but are being driven by the customers and, and what customers want and customers want to see more renewables being used. And so the companies that are selling to them, are driven to demand it as well. So I think, uh, you know, maybe we have a shifting terrain and a, a bit of a dip, but the outlook is, is still great and uh, will continue to go up. So thank you, everyone. All right, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, but I do hope that you'll check out the other Two for Tuesday episodes and let me know what you think of these shorter format discussions. You want more like this? You can find more than 200 episodes, resources, highlights from the discussions, along with social media links to each guest episode, book recommendations, and so much more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. And that's also where you'll find other ways to engage with the Suncast tribe, like subscribing to our weekly emails or even joining the exclusive inner circle we affectionately refer to as the Guild. If you're on Spotify or iTunes, I so appreciate your rating and review so that others can also find Suncast more easily. A special thank you to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Follow the links there for any offers we've discussed here today. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>